This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. Good evening and welcome to our Connecticut Mirror Legislative Session Recap. I'm John Dankosky of the Connecticut Mirror, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Mark Pazniokas, the Mirror's Capital Bureau Chief. We're going to be taking your questions throughout our program tonight. And this program is made possible in part by the generous support of CBIA. They've been supporters of our live event series for years, and we thank them once again for their commitment to the Connecticut Mirror. I should also say that the Connecticut Mirror, as always, is nonprofit, nonpartisan, and it's very reliant on you for support. So consider a donation if you haven't already this year by just clicking that donate button in the upper right corner of the Connecticut Mirror site, ctmirror.org. It's always a good way to support the type of news and information that you get on a daily basis from the mirror. I'm at my house in Winstead, but Mark Pazniokas is in the palatial offices of the Connecticut Mirror and joins us tonight. Mark, first of all, really good to see you. Good to see you. And the only reason I'm not in my home office is that I have a two-year-old visitor who uh, has a habit of breaking into my Zoom meetings, uh, although I, he does have opinions on the fiscal guardrails, as it turns out. So we'll get that tonight. <laughs> well, yeah, I may have some cats join me because I'm doing this from home, but probably they won't be as disruptive as that. First of all, Paz, before we get into some of the, the politics, some of the policy, what was this session like for you this time? You've covered oh, so many of them over the years. What, what were some of the big takeaways just personally as far as what, what you got out of this session? Well, I will say it was a joy to be back in the building and have uh, almost all the participants in the process of making legislation also in the building for really the first time since that Friday in March of 2020 when they uh, emptied the building and said, we'll all be back Monday after a deep cleaning. <laughs> Well, so, and, yeah. And, and did that change things? I mean, was it was it really good to be business, uh, you know, business as usual back back to it? Yes. Um, and there are certainly things that are now permanent. The idea of letting the public uh, participate remotely at public hearings. I think everybody agrees that that was a lesson learned during COVID and it was very much. Uh, a step forward for public access. But, you know, as a reporter, you lose so much when things are done remotely. Um, there are things you learn just by walking through the corridors of walking into a public hearing, walking into a committee meeting and seeing who's there, what on the agenda has drawn people. Um, there is uh, the architecture of both the legislative office building and the state capitol has a certain element of transparency built into it. You know, there tend to be ad hoc meetings um, in different quarters and different uh, corridors. Um, there are things that are certainly done out of uh, the public view. We can get to a couple of those a little bit later. But yes, overall, it it really uh, was a joy to be back. And I think uh, pretty much everybody would would feel the same way. It's a different building. And certainly the amount of cooperation, particularly on the budget, I think, is an outgrowth of people being in physical proximity to each other. Um, Connecticut really separated itself, certainly from Washington, D.C., but from many state capitals as far as the tone of debate, the fact that there were significant bipartisan votes, particularly on the budget, but more than the bipartisanship on certain votes was the general tenor of debate. Even when the parties disagreed, 
um, with some exceptions, you know, the debates were were reasonable in tone. And um, as somebody who's been watching, you know, the sausage factory of, of cranking out legislation, I have to admit, um, I do take uh, some joy in, in seeing that kind of, you know, byplay. But but it is not it has not always been such. I mean, even in Connecticut, even in a place that is far different than Washington in the way that it makes laws, we have been through both of us many sessions in which the tone and the tenor have not been like that. Is is part of it just the personalities involved? Is part of it the proximity once again and the ability to to just horse trade and talk to one another after some time being apart? To to what do you attribute this this bipartisanship? Never separate the personalities from the politics and the policy. And clearly, Governor Lamont, um, he is a Democrat. Um, he has been um, a progressive on on some issues. Uh, is certainly support of some key labor things, the $15 minimum wage, paid family medical leave, uh, reproductive rights. And he was the sponsor of a fairly comprehensive gun control bill with the first major gun legislation passed since uh, the Sandy Hook law a decade ago. Um, and I think that did set a tone. He, But he is also very much a centrist when it comes to fiscal policy. And he ran for re-election on that platform, and it was reflected in the budget. Um, one of his biggest victories and earliest victories came in February. There was a unanimous vote to extend the so-called fiscal guidelines, um, some of which were adopted five years ago, six years ago, rather, 2017. And that really set a framework for a budget that was going to be to his liking. It, it had a middle-class tax cut, um, but it did not allow legislators to take full advantage of what for Connecticut is, you know, an unfamiliar situation of every year having uh, surpluses of one billion, two billion, three billion. And, you know, we don't need to get into the uh, the details of how those three caps work, other than um, they do guard against um having spending reflect a spike in revenue. And Connecticut certainly had a spike in revenue in both tax revenue and federal uh, aid that came courtesy of uh, ARPA. Um, but also in the House, you know, you have uh, a Speaker of the House in Matt Ritter. Uh, he is the leader of a 98-member caucus. The Republicans have 53. Um, and he is very sensitive to the differ the differences in his caucus he was unwilling to force votes that could be uncomfortable for some of his members and that was frustrating for some of the progressives who believed that you could have had certain bills that if you if push came to shove and they had to make a choice they would have been more green lights than than red lights and then on the republican side um representative Vincent Canalora the house republican leader uh, even though he is personally quite conservative, he was uh, a member of the conservative caucus before he became the leader of the entire caucus. He is very much uh, an institutionalist in that he is a believer in governing, um, and he was very much engaged. And at his direction, the Republicans were very much engaged in the budget, and and that makes a, that certainly makes a difference. So I'm a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think one of the things that I know we wanted to talk about a little bit is 
that it's not easy to govern for Democrats with such a huge majority in the House. It, it seems like it should be easy, and it seems like it could be, in some people's minds, a time to be bold. But in order to protect that large coalition, to hold it together, it seems as though uh, Matt Ritter and his colleagues have had to, you know, maybe govern in a slightly different way than you think that you would when you have such a large lead. <laughs> Bigger does not mean bolder at the Connecticut General Assembly. I think we learned that this year. Um, and because bigger means you have, you know, you have people from districts that used to be solidly Republican. For example, all three House members from Greenwich are Democrats. Uh, you have some other Fairfield County wealthy uh, suburbs, uh, suburban districts that are represented by Democrats. Um, and of course, the the urban coalition is Democratic co uh, coalition is still solid. And there's also, you know, here and there, there are uh, Democrats in more rural districts, including um, Maria Horn, who's the, the woman who ran the, the tax committee, the finance revenue bonding committee. She's from the northwest corner of Connecticut. So these things tend to moderate. You would think they would make uh, a Democratic majority bolder, but it actually has the opposite effect. And it, it was maddening to some people because when people do a vote count, um, the question is, does the vote count reflect who is a hard no, or does it really reflect who doesn't want to vote for the damn thing? And we certainly saw that in a couple instances, um, particularly an expansion of uh, Connecticut's first in the nation paid sick days law. Um, the governor was on board with an expansion. The Senate was on board with an even bigger expansion, but the House wouldn't pull the trigger and call a vote on the bill that the Senate sent downstairs, largely on a party line vote. So that's one example. Maybe you can give us another example or two of things that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party at the Capitol or progressives elsewhere in the state might have hoped could get through this year, but just didn't see the light of day because of these very problems, I suppose, with this coalition that, that you've outlined already? Well, you know, it's not just the progressives being frustrated. There certainly um, were bills that more moderates would have liked to have seen. Uh, in fact, one of the bills that, uh, you know, the, the underwriter of, of this evening, CBIA, um, they very much were in favor of uh, a law that would have eased uh, business associations to provide health care coverage. And there was significant support for it. The governor certainly thought it was a good idea. Um, but for a variety of reasons, it didn't get through. Some of them are differences in personalities. Um, one of the key backers of that is a leader of, of the moderates, uh, Representative Kerry Wood. And, you know, bills get entangled with each other at the end of the session. So something may stand if, if it was just standing alone on its own merits might go, but then things get connected to other bills that were also supposed to go. Or again, there may, might be personality conflicts and all of that goes into the, into the machinery that cranks out legislation or doesn't crank it out. Another thing that I think I hear you saying is that after a number of years now being in this office, the place seems to be taking on a kind of 
Ned Lamont um, sized uh, shape. It's it has become a more moderate place in many ways. It seems as though from the outside that many of his priorities are indeed there. And as you said, he's touted the fact that he's been able to actually do some of the things that he he ran on a few times. Is it more Ned, Ned Lamont's government than it was, you know, a couple of years ago? Yes. And that's an interesting question because to be blunt, Ned Lamont um, is not the strongest personality I have ever seen in the Capitol and certainly not in the governor's office. Uh, his predecessor, Dan Malloy, um, there was seldom a question as to what his desires were and his ability to push them through, even with thinner margins. And the fact that Dan Malloy, you know, was elected the first time with less than 50% of the vote, and he barely got 50% the second time. Ned Lamont rolled in to a second term with what by Connecticut standards was a landslide. He won by 13 percentage points. Uh, he is one of the last time I checked, he is one of only two Democratic governors in the United States that are, have an approval rating of 60%. Um, so, yes, I think at some point um, he has prevailed, even though he does not twist arms. Uh, he did set a very, very uh, strong limit on what would be acceptable on the budget. He would not go for anything that weakened these uh, these caps, volatility cap, spending cap, revenue cap. And even though, you know, like Matt Ritter, who is more uh, like Ned Lamont, is is sort of uh, a, sort of a centrist in some ways in that he reflects the breadth of his caucus. But he was pushing very much for um, some relief to the cap. You know, one of the things was, you know, so-called revenue intercept and what that meant was he wanted to intercept some of the sales tax revenue outside the cap. The rationale was the sales tax revenue was booming in part because of inflation. So why not be able to spend a little bit more of that? Um, so yes, to I think to a degree, the governor's personality and his priorities um, have taken hold and and certainly the tone. I mean, he has a, a working relationship with the Republicans. They are not averse to criticize him, you know, very stridently at times on his gun control bill, um, on some of the other things his administration stands for, including um, doing language that's gender neutral, which is a simple thing, but sometimes these things turn into uh, heated debates because uh, all it takes is a few members to take offense at, you know, at uh, referring to uh, mothers and fathers as birth parents instead of mothers. That was uh, something of a kerfluffle uh, the other day. You don't get to use kerfluffle and lang and conversations very often. <laughs> as often as you can, you should try to work it in. And again, if you have questions for Paz, there's a there's a chance for you to do that at the bottom of the screen. There's a Q&A function. I will start to get to some of those questions in just a moment. I, I know that it's something that you've talked about. In some ways, one of the constituencies that Ned Lamont courts and continues to court doesn't necessarily reside in Connecticut. It's it's the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal. He he loves it when Connecticut goods gets good press, but especially when it gets good press in certain places. Very much so. Um, over the course of his time in uh, office, he has often taken note when the Wall Street Journal 
shows signs of taking its foot off of Connecticut's <laughs> figurative neck um, as a place to do business. Um, and yes, there was a favorable editorial, favorable to gov- more favorable to Governor Lamont than the um, political class as a whole. Uh, it suggested that he was single-handedly fighting off Democratic leaders uh, on blowing up the various fiscal guardrails. And that, of course... I'm sure that went well with everybody else in the building. Well, I think they let that one go. But it uh, it's hard to say that, given that the vote in February for those caps uh, was unanimous. Um, now, again, I, I don't want to go way deep into all that stuff. But, you know, Senator Looney, Senator Marty Looney, the leader of the Senate, um, he, you know, he does not really want to hear complaints about the caps because when he tried to revise them, you know, for instance, uh, sort of taking out certain things like some forms of municipal aid outside of that. And he said, it's not like the cities and towns lined up behind him and lobbied for it. So, you know, it was it was only when it was clear, uh, you know, late March into April and then into May as to how limiting those caps would be that you saw really the outrage, particularly when it came to uh, reimbursements for nonprofits, um, you know, there is a network of, of nonprofit service providers, which very much is an extension of state government. Um, they are funded um, to a large degree, or in some cases, almost entirely by the, the state of Connecticut. Um, and then even nursing homes, you know, where, you know, if you are a Medicaid patient in a nursing home, half that money is coming from Connecticut. So Connecticut, by what it offers in reimbursements really sets uh, labor scales. And I don't think anybody makes the case that the folks who work in nursing homes and group homes uh, for disabled folks are being underpaid. And that was the real test of values, I think, this session was the governor's desire to have Connecticut seen as fiscally stable, um, as a place where um, businesses should look to expand um, versus using that surplus money to raise wages on folks who, like I said, you know, I think clearly deserve higher wages. Um, uh, By the way, this, in, in yeah. defense of the governor on that, I will yes. add that when you do pay down a pension debt, there is an immediate value because the annual contribution you have to do. So uh, Lamont's argument is over time, that is good for all these services that Connecticut is providing. It will free up more money in the general fund budget, but it takes time. And there is a desire to do something more dramatically now on those wages. Yeah. And to, to this point, one of the questions coming in is from, from Kathy. It says, not that I want to return to the days of recessions and deficits, but really wonder whether the governor understands the impact of strict adherence to the fiscal guardrails on services provided by community nonprofits and, and those that, that they serve. It, you, you just lined something out there, Paz, which is important, is that long term, some of, some of these fiscal guardrails can provide important savings to the state that will long-term be good for these services. Is it an either or though? I mean, can we be, and I'm sure that this is quite a bit of the debate, can we be fiscally prudent and still provide what's necessary for people who are doing this very hard work, especially coming out of a couple of years of really, really hard work during COVID? Well, despite what I said at the top about 
the willingness of the various parties to work together. Um, the middle ground on so many things is a difficult place to work in American politics. And, you know, the governor's response to what you just said would be, if you yield significant ground now, given that Connecticut had been awful for 30 40, you know, my my friend and colleague Keith Faniff would say it goes back to the 1940s or, or beyond that Connecticut's failure to adequately support its pension fund. Um, so the, the governor's position is, you know, I'm going to be kind of a hard ass on that and stick to it. And and there will be benefits. Um, but, you know, there is um there's there are strong cases about unmet needs, and that is the classic debate over values. Um, I don't know if that debate was vigorous enough or perhaps public enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, the governor was certainly public in his positions. And uh, the union, for example, who represents the striking group home workers, um, 1199 was certainly clear. Um, but that was the part that you know, that was the struggle throughout the year about how do you meet? Those are both valid, I would say, public mm -hmm. policy positions. You know, Lamont's position on Connecticut's long history of fiscal mismanagement and irresponsibility really cannot be denied. On the other hand, we have unmet needs. We have them today. And Connecticut right now has more money than it's willing to spend on those services. Uh, speaking of these fiscal guardrails, Alex asks, did, did the bipartisanship on the budget guard, guardrails go too far when they were adopted unanimously without any public hearing, but the impact of the guardrails was regretted by the end of the session? I, I'll parenthetically say at least by some. Uh, should bipartisanship be accepted as an alternative to public hearings? Thank you, says Alex. Yeah, and that's that's a great question and it's a question that i certainly pose to the governor and to certain legislators do you have any buyer's regret and you know when i asked uh tony walker the representative from new haven who is the co-chair of appropriations and certainly has um a big heart when it comes to folks in need um, I, I asked her that because they would talk about, well, you know, there's a learning curve. So, well, there's a learning curve. If you know then what you know now, would you have voted for that? And she refused to answer that question, which is unusual for Tony Walker. She usually uh, will answer whatever whatever is, is asked. But, yeah, that was something that was done quickly. It was done in February. And as I recall, it was an emergency certified bill, which means it bypasses the normal, you know, public hearing process. Um, and by the way, there's nothing magic. And I had, you know, we had a conversation with the governor at Real Artways. It was a public event. And I, I sort of pressed him on his, to the degree to which he's looked into the inner workings of how those caps work, because even the people who drafted them, I think, would be the first to admit there's nothing magical about those formulas. You know, there's a volatility cap, which, you know, Connecticut, because the state relies so much on the income tax and so much of the income tax revenue comes from Fairfield County and so much of Fairfield County relies on Wall Street where it goes up and down. Um, the, the volatility cap, I think, every, you know, most people would agree 
made a lot of sense. Smooth out the highs and lows. Um, because even when you provide more funding, you don't want to take it away two years later, right? You, you increase nursing home reimbursements or you do what they didn't do this year, but there's a pressure to eventually do, which is raise Medicaid reimbursement rates for, say, specialists because uh, folks of limited means who get their health insurance through Medicaid, which is called Husky in Connecticut, um, they can have a hard time getting an appointment with a specialist. So, uh, you know, Alex, that's a great question, and and it really was a fundamental one about what is the political identity right now of Connecticut, as well as the values of this governor and this General Assembly. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions coming in about a variety of topics, but three uh, different people have, have asked about, uh, and they put it three different ways, um, the bill about aid in dying or physician-assisted suicide or death with dignity, depending on how you decide to phrase that. This is something that we've been talking about for for some time. What happened with that legislation this year? Short answer is not much. It, it did not really go go far down the road. Um, and, um, you know, that's a bill that has trouble getting out of committee at times. And when it does get out of public health, um, last, you know, one time it, it didn't get out of judiciary. So that was really not a factor. It was eliminated as a contender for passage very early in the session. Uh, we have a, a couple questions here, including from our friend uh, Bilal, who is uh, Bilal Saku, who is a, a board member of the Connecticut Mirror, also a professor at University of Hartford. Uh, it says proponents of access to housing through fair share won a very partial victory. Do you anticipate any future legislative breakthrough they would give families from places like Hartford access to affordable housing in high opportunity communities in the suburbs. We have a few questions about housing policy. And this is something that, frankly, Paz, once again, much like Aiden dying, comes up every session, comes up every year. What happened this time around? The, the difference between the housing issue and, say, Aiden dying is, is there is a large constituency to do something. There is an incredibly broad consensus that this state is woefully short of affordable housing. And it's a problem uh, for businesses. It's a problem for uh, municipalities who are trying to employ teachers, cops, firefighters. And it's a of limited, not even just limited means, of, of really middle-class folks who it's a struggle to get housing here. All right, so that's the consensus. Now the, the question is, what do you do? So this governor has put uh, significant funding um, available, which will help develop affordable housing, but it doesn't do anything to confront suburbs where multifamily housing is either um, not allowed at all, it's not in their, their zoning code is, is a matter of right. And by the way, multifamily housing is in this state is defined as three or more units. Um, so the... The hard thing on this is if you're going to nudge the suburbs over the zoning issues as opposed to the expense issues, because even if you resolve um, zoning challenges, um, expensive land is expensive land. And that's you know one of the, the things that will always be there, which is why you need public subsidy to blend it with private money and bring down the cost and bring down the rents. But there was without leadership from the governor uh, or or the leaders of the caucuses, um, you're not going to see that. That require, in my view, in my analysis, that requires somebody staking out a very clear position and pursuing it. And that means 
whipping votes, which is just legislative talk for leaning on folks and and trying to build a coalition. There was no um, there was no coalition around an approach. Take, for example, mm. I mean, CBIA would love to see more housing, but I saw no evidence of CBIA um, being involved in um, pushing towns to change their their zoning. Um, when it comes to affordable housing, you know, you also have to ask the question of the various groups, because there are several. What is your primary goal? Is it the production of affordable housing? Is it the production of affordable housing in places that do not have economic or racial um, diversity? Because that's that's a different thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Can there are um, there are certainly communities that have uh, industrial buildings ready to be redone, uh, have commercial buildings. You know, Hartford has done that very successfully with support from state money. Um, but you know, that's that's one of the 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 tensions here. You know, one of the groups is called desegregate Connecticut. So is your goal to desegregate Connecticut or is your goal to build as much affordable housing wherever you can get it? And I don't mean to make light of it, but you know, there's overlap on those two very worthy goals, but you know, they can be exclusive at times if when it comes to the question of zoning in some of these suburbs. And this governor clearly is has no stomach um, to take that fight on. I think that's very clear. I, I should say, uh, just by way of disclosure, that yes, indeed, CBA is sponsoring this evening's event. Hi, folks. And uh, thank you very much for, as always, supporting the work that we do here at the Connecticut Mirror. Taking some more of your questions here, a lot more for Mark Pazniokas as we wrap up the 2023 legislative session. Amongst the many things that I heard from people in these last couple of weeks, people that I know, uh, Pazza came up to me, folks who are involved in environmental issues said, not a whole heck of a lot got done this year, huh? And much like some of the questions around social services, they're pointing some fingers at the governor, certainly. What happened exactly in terms of environmental policy this time around, given the fact that there are so many pressing environmental problems happening. It was noted by many people that the session was wrapping up uh, amidst a a fog and haze coming from the wildfires in Canada, engulfing the Northeast in noxious fumes. What what exactly happened with environmental policy this time around? Well, the governor's administration did, um, did act aggressively on a couple elements of environmental legislation. Um, there was fairly ambitious legislation on what to do about the disposal of municipal solid waste. Connecticut, uh, with the closure of a waste to energy plant in Hartford last year, uh, there are only three waste to, ener- waste to energy plants, burn plants that generate electricity by burning trash. There are no landfills that take municipal solid waste. So this state ships 860,000 tons of trash by train and by truck to the Midwest. And that's a lot of trash. It's a lot of trash. And obviously there's environmental implications in just shipping it. Now, now trains are more environmentally sensitive um, than trucks, assuming they don't derail with large tanks of chemicals, but exactly. But, um, but that's still cheaper than using these very aging burn plants. So, 
the administration tried to do a number of things. Um, look at how to reduce the waste stream by uh, packaging. There's something called um, EPR, which is basically putting uh, it, it's environment, what, environment production, I don't know. I am totally, oh, extended producer responsibility. It just popped wow, in. There we go. There. Yes. I, I was and about anyway, to Google it. And, and we have extended producer right, responsibility on some very narrow uh, product lines, right? Um, there's no safe way to uh, get rid of old paint in your in your bins so there's a way you bring it back to your local uh, recycling center and the paint industry takes care of it because you paid a little extra when you bought your gallon of paint and that's that's the the simplification of it the administration was putting forward a broader very ambitious thing about how can you do a system like that for all solid waste basically and one of the questions was would you give up control over recycling there are this is a, a hybrid system it's you know we, we municipalities in the state pay certain money to, to get this going but you know in the hartford area there's a recycling sorting plant that uh, a private company put 40 million dollars into it and you know they get tip fees for it but they also sell the stuff they sort and they need a guaranteed flow of stuff they can recycle and sell. Otherwise, they lose their shirt on that. And that is one of the tensions. The Lamont administration also wanted to impose basically a, a fee um, to create a cash flow for a variety of reasons to fund the next generation of how we're going to get rid of our waste, you know, whether it's going to be newer cleaner burn plants you know that, that generate energy or some other technology and anything that costs money regarding this was very controversial so it's not that the governor's office and the department of energy environmental protection didn't try in fact there was an effort to resurrect a bill that could not get through the environment committee intact and stick it into the budget you know which is sort of the final you know, the last chance to do that. You put in something that may be unpopular with something that is popular, such as middle-class tax cuts that were in the budget. Um, but uh, but th that didn't fly. Um, uh, on climate, yeah. you know, again, anything that costs money, it, it has trouble. But the, the thing that was odd this year, and again, this is where I think personalities come into it. The House did pass a bill and it was, you know, it had a couple of names. It was called a roadmap to decarbonization or, or zero emissions policy. But here's the thing. It didn't impose anything. It really set in motion, uh, again, a roadmap. Um, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection would be ordered to um, start to produce this kind of map uh, beginning in 2025. And so it wasn't anything that gave the Commissioner of uh, Energy and Environmental Protection, you know, superhero powers. Um, but um, just the very, uh, some of the language in there, it did declare uh, a climate crisis, not state of emergency, which has you know, certain legal aspects where it allows a governor to bypass things. But it passed the House, it passed the House on party lines, and it just sat in the Senate. So the question is why? There were certainly enough Democrats to pass that. Um, was the uh, environmental co-chair 
lukewarm about it. You know, in the Senate, they give great deference to committee chairs. And sometimes that gums up the works as well. You may have a committee chair that's less than enthused about bringing out a certain bill and defending it. And sometimes that's all it takes to have it die from inaction. But uh, and the other the other element here, it's a larger problem for the administration and and for environmentalists in general, is that uh, Katie Dykes, the commissioner of energy and environmental protection, has, I believe, a very difficult relationship with uh, the legislature. There is not uh, a lot of trust in anything that gives her department more power. You see pushback. It's very public. It's very visible. Um, and, you know, that what's was, it, what's it about? Is it about personality? Well, is it about, is it about the, uh, the overall aims of that department, a, a very large, expensive, important department that oversees both the energy sector, or at least a big part of it, and also environmental regulation? I think it's all of it. And, and you can, again, you never can separate personalities and relationships from the policy. And so here's an example. And this is, you know, in hindsight, it's kind of a silly thing, but it's instructive of Commissioner Dyke's difficulties with the General Assembly. When the legislature expanded the bottle bill, um, the way it was written, to me, it was the language was very clear. It applied to a bunch of new things, including hard seltzers. Okay. A can is a can, right? This stuff comes in a can. But um, the legislators were quite clear in the debate as far as legislative intent that, you know, there nothing produced by the wine and spirits corner of the folks who make booze has ever been covered by the bottle bill. And there's no infrastructure for it. So it was quite clear that the hard seltzers that have either wine or spirits in them, as opposed to malt beverages, that they would not be covered by the bottle bill. But as I said, the plain language was, yeah, they're covered. Instead of informing the legislature that for me not to apply the bottle bill to those hard seltzers, you're going to have to change the law. Instead of doing that, they put out a notice to merchants that they would be collecting a, a 10 cent deposit on hard seltzer. And, you know, it's a little thing, but it really annoyed lawmakers. And I would I would say it was a political misstep on the part of um, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And in fact, the fix was a 12 word sentence that Define more clearly what the legislature, quite frankly, should have done the first time. Define more clearly. Well, there, uh, there, there is that. There, maybe you just write the language well, the right way. And sometimes at the legislature, you can be right. And Katie Dykes was right on interp- in interpreting what the plain <laughs> language was. But I think you could argue she was politically wrong uh, I, and yeah. responded <laughs> to it. And again, it's one of the things that they pay a price for it. You know, I think there is a consensus that Commissioner Dykes is brilliant. Um, She is uh, farsighted in her views of the challenges facing Connecticut and the rest of the world on on climate change, on climate resilience. You know, we certainly have a significant coastline in Connecticut on the Sound, and we also have streams and rivers that periodically spill over their banks. but unfortunately, uh, there is that tension there. They, her confirmation, because when a governor starts a new term, his people are up again. 
And um, Republicans blocked her confirmation to send a message for quite a while. And it was only after they fixed the very important issue of hard seltzer deposits that they uh, deigned to uh, give uh, the commissioner her confirmation vote. We, we have a bunch of questions, really good questions coming in from folks in the Q&A here. And so I want to get to as many of them as we can. So we'll, we'll blow through a few things. Um, some more uh, stuff that specifically happened at the end of the session, but um, our friend Doobie has a question for you. Could Paz talk about how uh, GOP elected officials in the legislature are handling the Trump thing? It was great to see bipartisan cooperation, but there is this sort of wonder about whether or not you're going to get primaried if you get too cozy with the with the Dems, with with the libs, you know? I think actually, I think both parties are amazed that uh, who's who right now, who is a front runner, front runner in both parties. You know, you have a Democrat who would be 86 at the end of his second term (laughs) and you have a Republican who is under indictment um, in New York state as well as federal government. Uh, And yeah, they they do their best to stay away from it. I I don't sense any great love or any great desire among elected officials, um, elected Republicans in the General Assembly. Um, there is very much a desire for Donald Trump to just go away. But he is so problematic for them because every poll I've seen indicates that a Republican who denounces him, there's an issue. You do have, um, again, a significant part of the, of the Republican base who remains loyal to Donald Trump. And it's very easy to say, why aren't you being bolder? But, you know, that's just the political reality. I think, um, you know, certainly after um, the Biden victory, we had some Republican leaders who were quite clear in breaking with Donald Trump, you know, Vinnie Candelora among them, the House Republican leader, he said uh, pretty soon after the election, he said, it's over. You know, if there was fraud, it was not fraud significant enough to call the results into question. Let's move on. And he said that, I believe, in November immediately afterwards. And he certainly didn't change his tune after the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Themis Claritis, the former House Republican leader, um, had a similar position. And she has was public and that she did not vote for Trump's uh, re-election. Um, and that that cost her when in a primary when she ran um, for U.S. Senate. So it's it's a tough spot and it's going to be a tough spot uh, for Republicans and particularly in a, well, in any state, really, because, you know, the base the base is still with Trump to a significant, a statistically significant. degree. <sighs> Since we're talking about elections, more public money is now available to run for governor. And that's an interesting outgrowth of the session. Does this mean the end of all these self-funding candidates that we've had over the course of the last decade or so? It's an experiment, what they're doing. It's uh, not the self-funders. That's not an experiment. Um, But in the idea of trying to figure- It's been going great for Republicans uh, in the state, by the way, that experiment. But go ahead. Yes, please continue. (laughs) The current governor, as I recall, is a Democrat who who spent a lot of his money- He did. He did. Uh, winning the office, winning re-election, as well as on unsuccessful runs for United States Senate and previously for governor. So we do have that. Um, so what they did, um, they there were two problems with uh, public financing. So public, you know, to just sort of remind folks, anybody who's tuning into this probably knows what it is. But 
if you, you qualify for public financing, you agree to strict spending limits and you get a lot of public money. You have to raise certain seed money to show that you're a credible candidate and you have to have a place on the ballot. So it's hugely popular, people in both parties, for every office except governor. And Bob Stefanowski taught us uh, four years ago um, that early spending, if you are a self-funder, you can do early spending. The publicly financed people really can't do. So Bob Stefanowski, who was the Republican candidate for Republican nominee for governor four years ago and again last year, uh, he did a million, million and a half dollars in early spending, went on TV, and he came out of nowhere. I mean, this is a guy who didn't even vote uh, until he became a candidate. And so it was a pretty extraordinary thing. Um, and the, his competitors who were publicly financed really didn't get significant money until June. And by that point, it was over. So what they're doing is they're doubling the grant. The public grant for a general election would be somewhere north of 15 million, um, I think 8 million for primary. Um, but the interesting thing is there's a new grant. It would be a pre-convention grant. So that's an acknowledgement of if you're going to be public finance, you need some money in those early months. So to qualify for it, you still have to raise the seed money, which is not insignificant. Um, to run for governor, it's going to be close to $300,000 you have to raise. So I think we will see people who want to be publicly financed will start early. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, I don't know what time. Um, you know, as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as um, well, that law was signing because it was uh, attached. No, it was attached to a, a secondary bill. But so that's the experiment. Will that give you enough money to compete? Now, money is not the be all and end all. You need a certain amount of money to be credible to get your uh, message out. But Dan Malloy beat two self-funders in 2010. He beat Ned Lamont in a primary and Tom Foley in the general election. And Linda McMahon spent $50 million twice, you know, once against uh, Dick Blumenthal, once against Chris Murphy for open Senate seats and didn't get it done. Uh, in fact, her numbers were not hugely different from what's the kind of the base Republican vote. So like I said, it is an experiment. When they launched public financing campaigns after the Roland scandal. Um, it was very much an experiment as to how it would work. And when it comes to certainly electing the General Assembly, I think it is certainly freed lawmakers of reliance on uh, lobbyists for money and on their own leadership packs. Leadership packs were almost totally relying uh, reliant on lobbyists. So it's really changed the dynamic at the General Assembly. I, I, I don't think anybody would dispute that. And it's also opened the field to who can run. Um, you know, so it, it's, I think there's been a lot of good, but is it still relevant in the race for governor? We'll, we'll find out in three years. Also in election news, uh, interestingly, it, it it seemed as though Connecticut might make a move to move up its primary, and somehow that didn't happen. Yeah. How did that not happen? That's a great question. 
And it should have been easy. It should have. The interesting thing, there were two things in that bill. To, so the, the bill was, and this is a bill supported by the Republican state party chair, the Democratic state party chair, and then the Democrat who happens to be governor right now. So you would think that's a layup, right? And all it did was move Connecticut's presidential primary from the last Tuesday in April to the first Tuesday in April, right? No must, no fuss. Now, the other part of that bill that Ben Proto, the Republican chair, and Nancy Dernardo, the Democratic chair, what, was to raise the limits um, on what you can give state parties from $10,000. That was the is now the maximum contribution to $15,000. Interestingly enough, that piece of that bill was tucked into another aircraft carrier of a bill that kind of took on all kinds of things at the end. But for whatever reason, nobody thought to add the primary date change and and why they couldn't pass that, because it did have bipartisan support, uh, is really a, a mystery. Um, I asked the governor that question when he had a ceremonial bill signing for early voting, and he he turned to uh, the, the chairs of the Government Administration Elections Committee, particularly May Flexer, the senator, because it was, uh, I believe it was a Senate bill. He goes, yeah. He goes, what happened there? And there were no there were no answers offered. <laughs> so so for all of the the little things that get tucked into the big bill at the end that we you know bitch and moan about, and we're like, how did that get in there? This is one that probably could have and should have, and everyone thought it was going to, and it just didn't. You would interesting. Think. Early voting though. Early voting. The only controversy was uh, really uh, is there sufficient money. For the municipalities, and the other, the, and the other controversy was, um, it didn't get as many Republican votes as it would have if it had been a more modest start. And they are starting with 14 days of early voting, as opposed to uh, Secretary of State uh, Stephanie Thomas's recommendation, um, based on a study, to to do 10 days. Um, you know, it's going to be a burden for the smaller towns, certainly. Um, you could have done 10 days, which would cover two weekends. Um, there was a, a fair amount of nonsense about security and stuff. This is not new. The, these early cast ballots will be handled the same way absentee ballots are now, the ones that are returned by by mail or returned in person. And um, it, it's well, well overdue in Connecticut. We are one of the last four states that does not allow some form of early voting. And the reason, of course, was our constitution was unusually prescriptive on, on the hours and days of voting as well as the use of absentee ballots. So a constitutional amendment did pass overwhelmingly, I might add. So we are, you know, if we're not, if we're not cutting edge, we're at least, you know, well into the 21st century, at least in the 20th century. You, you had mentioned the, the the comprehensive gun control bill, the first uh, really signed uh, after the Sandy Hook uh, provisions that came in years ago. Uh, maybe you can just very quickly walk through what exactly is in there? How transformative is any of this? We also had a question from Richard about the plans of those opposed to the gun violence prevention law to file a lawsuit against it. Yeah, there's, there's it's certainly going to be challenged. Um the gun control law, I mean, politically, it was it was one of Lamont's victories. He he actually did also negotiate some health care cost containment stuff, not as ambitious as he wanted. But they, I think they did set in motion some things that we should at least acknowledge that could uh, control costs. But the gun thing, um, it was 
comprehensive as far as the breadth of what it tackles. So it strengthened the, the current ban on AR-15s and similar rifles. Um, it closed a loophole that allowed um, pre-ban AR-15s to be purchased still. Um, it um, There was really no enforceable uh, ban on the large capacity magazines that were passed in Sandy Hook. So that was tightened. Um, it bans open carry. Uh, it does not ban carry. It does not affect who can be permitted. Um, people, as the gun safety or gun control folks would quickly point out, that even though Connecticut is generally considered as the fourth, fifth, or sixth safest state or with strongest states for gun laws, um, people own lots and lots of guns, and that's still legal. The open carry ban, it really was not a big issue here, but in some parts of the country, you would see people being deliberately provocative, walking into a shopping mall with an AR-15 strapped over their shoulder, or a handgun uh, either tucked into their waistband or in a holster. And so you will have to, if you have a permit to carry a firearm in Connecticut, it's still valid. It will remain valid, but you got to, you got to conceal it, you know? Um, there was, there were things for the, uh, there was more gun safe storage stuff. There was something for gun owners in there. There are some cities, uh, that are very slow in acting on, um, what's called the suitability investigation for, uh, permit applicants. So this set, um, kind of a, a tighter deadline. And if the cities don't, um, meet the current timeline and a little bit more time passes, they can go right to the state police, which is now the final thing, which is really, uh, if you don't have a record and the local cops haven't said you're unsuitable, you know, Connecticut is a shall issue state. And by the way, that has legal applications because when people look at the Supreme Court's case against uh, in New York, New York um, did not have the same kind of structure Connecticut does. So that's why Connecticut people think this law um, is defensible, even with um, the new guidelines set by the U.S. Supreme Court. We we have just a couple of minutes left. we got a bunch of questions that are kind of like structural questions about the way that things get done. Lori asks, lawmakers often claim the clock ran out or there was just not enough time to address many bills. Why is leadership so willing to allow unending filibusters when so many bills are awaiting action? It's something that we've certainly talked about in the past. Paz, I, I don't know if anything to to... to tag on to Lori's question. I don't know if there's anything new in the way that the legislature works now, post-COVID, back in the building here, that that maybe could point to changes in this. But we seem to be back in the same place, right, where oh, everything gets done at the very end and then things don't get done and we don't have well, more time. And it is one of the moderating influences in legislating in Connecticut because the balance of power shifts at the end. Any legislator who is willing to stand up and talk endlessly, you can, in effect, kill a bill. And we certainly saw um, that attempt on the last day by Senator Rob Sampson, who spoke for hours on end in opposition to the affordable housing bill that did pass. Um, it, it wasn't as strong as what the advocates wanted, but there were things in there that certain protections for tenants against evictions and 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 certain other things I think people agreed were were good public policy. And that was a nine-hour debate on the very last day. So there's a couple of things at work here. Um, 
first off, you have to view the legislature like a big funnel. And everything starts, almost everything, unless it gets emergency certification that we talked about earlier, it goes through the committees, in some cases, multiple committees. And if there's if there's significant funds involved, it's probably not going to pass before there's a budget. So that means there's a whole bunch of stuff sitting on the House and Senate calendars in the final days. And they're all vulnerable. And some people would argue that's not a bad thing. It tends to moderate a, um, a legislature. It tends to push them towards incremental steps that may be frustrating to the people who want them, but ultimately put a state on a deliberate path. And, you know, they're certainly um, exceptions. You know, the the gun bill was a partisan bill um, that the governor pushed and the Democratic leadership pushed, and it got through without any problem. But yeah, it is one of the things that's maddening to people, because unlike Congress, you know, when you hit midnight on the, the constitutional adjournment deadline day, it's all done. I mean, the work is not completely wasted in that you you can take the material and refile. But it's not like Congress where you have two years to pass a, a bill. And but that's different. And again, there are differences of opinion as to whether or not that actually is good for legislating. If you take a long haul view of things as frustrating as it could be when it's your bill and you're asking, why didn't it pass? Yeah, there there's so many more things that, that we could tackle. Uh, it was obviously a very busy legislative session. We got a ton of great questions, as always, from our listeners and viewers. So thank you so much for those. Mark Pazniokas, the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror. Always good to talk to you, Paz. Take a, a well-deserved break. Go to the Cape or something. It's a good idea. <laughs> I think you should. Mark Pazniokas, as always, reports on the Capitol because of uh, support from people just like you who really love the Connecticut Mirror, love policy and politics, want to know what's happening at the Capitol, not just in events like this, but when you get a chance to read Mark and Keith and all of their, their colleagues on a daily basis, donate to support this vital news. Go to that little red button in the upper right-hand corner of the ctmirror.org page and make your contribution today. I want to thank our sponsor for today's event, CBIA. They've been so generous to us, not just this year, but through many years, especially of doing these Zoom events over the course of the last couple of years. Thank you to CBAA for supporting this work. Thanks again to audience engagement specialist, Gabby Benedictus. Damn it, Gabby. I always mess up your name. I'm so sorry. You ran the show tonight, and uh, thank you so much for that. Thanks to publisher Bruce Potterman, executive editor Beth Hamilton, and thanks to everyone who joined us tonight. I'm John Dankosky. We'll see you again soon.